I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Oh, boy. Hi, everyone. Um, This is literally like my 10th time trying to record this intro because I, I just, I don't know what to say. I'm feeling like it's been a really long week. It's been a long week of, of intent, active listening. It's been a long week of, of deep seated fucking rage. It's been a long week of, um, a long week of guilt, a long week of self-reflection and kids. This is just the beginning. This is, this is nothing. And if I'm, if I'm fucking sitting here saying that, that, that I feel like it's been a long week, how the fuck do you think it feels to be a black person in America right now? How the fuck do you think it feels to be a black person an indigenous person, a person of color right now in Canada. It's fucking crazy, man. It's absolutely crazy. It's crazy to me that it, that it's taken this long for me to feel like, 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 like I've, like I'm waking up like that. It, that's where, that's where the, that's where the guilt is coming from. You know, I, I have been thinking a lot this week about how, why has it taken this much pain, this much hurt, this much um, corruption for me to finally like fucking step up and, and try to use me to use my white privilege to, to do better. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just like, I'm really, I'm, I'm angry and, uh, and I'm tired but guess what? This is, this is just the fucking beginning. So if you, if you, if you're like me and you're, and you're feeling angry and you're feeling tired, well, eat your fucking Wheaties, eat your Wheaties, pop open that Gatorade, lace up your shoes nice and tight because this is a marathon folks. This is a, this is a fucking ultra marathon and the, and the starting whistle hasn't even gone off yet. We have so much work to do. And if you're not feel if you are not feeling this way right now, if you're not enraged, if you're not like like emotionally fucking rocked and affected by what's going on right now, it, you it is seriously time to wake up. This isn't this isn't just a, a problem in the U- United States. This is happening here in our country too, in Canada. DeAndre Campbell in Ontario in April. Regis Korczynski-Paquette just recently. Fucking this week, an indigenous woman, Chantal Moore in New Brunswick, 
shot and killed on a, on a wellness check. And what's, what's really, what's really. So listen, fuck Jeremy. I need to, I need to push things along here. Um, we're, we're going to this week. Let me, let me just let me explain what we're doing this week. This week we are changing things up a little bit. We, me, myself, uh, me, myself and I and Taylor and Brian, uh, we've, we've taken a lot of time this week to really reflect Lauren as well, uh, to, to listen, to learn, uh, to, to read resources, to listen to podcasts, to watch, watch documentaries. You know, every day I'm scrolling through Instagram, looking for stories that teach me how to be a better ally. And we figured this week, um, we're going to, we're going to continue to try to be better. And so we're going to use this platform to throw back to two conversations that we've had in the past that have surrounded the topics of race and in inequities in, in healthcare surrounding race. Uh, we're going to later in the episode, we're going to throw to a couple of segments from our recent episode with Dr. Ingrid Waldron about environmental racism. Um, but first we're going to throw to a conversation that we had a while back with our friend Verena, who's a nurse practitioner and there's something that, that she said in that conversation that really sticks out. And I quote, this is, this is what Verena said, powerful things happen when we sit with people in their pain. And I think that is what is happening right now. We are literally witnessing right now the biggest civil rights movement in the history of our fucking lives, in the history of the world. Every single state, people are marching. Almost every single province, people are out marching. People are marching in Korea, in Japan, in Australia, in Sweden, in Germany, in the UK. The entire fucking world right now is sitting with the pain that the black community has been going through for fucking years. And I really, I really hope, I really hope that we continue to sit in that pain because good things come from that. Powerful things like Verena said comes from that. And we talk about that. We talk about that whenever we cover grief, you know, to sit in grief, to not push away the the discomfort. This is not comfortable what we're going through, but we got to lean into that. We got to lean into that. We got to fight to be better. And that doesn't, and that I, I want to be really clear here. Th- this takes a lot of like your, uh, this is, this is our work to do. And when I say our, I'm talking like white, the, the majority of our listeners are white women between the ages of 25 and 35. It's our job as white people to do the work to be better and not rely on our black friends and our black community members to, to guide us in how to be better. We need to do that fucking work ourselves. And so if you are feeling uncomfortable with that idea, uh, that's okay. 
But like I said, lace up, fucking eat your Wheaties, and get ready. Get ready for this long haul. Oh, fuck, I talked way too much. Uh, let's let's throw it to this episode. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna cut in and out of uh, some clips from past episodes. I hope you enjoy it. We love each and every one of you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. And um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week, we see, support, and stand with all of our black listeners. Black Lives Matter. So what's Um, what's a prison like? So after the job in Ontario, I moved back to Nova Scotia to pioneer and create the role at Spring Hill uh, Maximum Male Security Prison. So I Spring Hill is a prison here in Nova Scotia, just outside Halifax, right? Mm-hmm. It's in it's Burnside. Two hours? No. Oh no, it's no, a federal that, prison. Sorry, Burnside's the, yeah, the jail, like the the jail jail. Yeah. And then Spring Hill's the the prison prison. Yeah. So it's yeah, a right. medium to maximum. Yeah. When you say it twice, it, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one's the jail jail and one's the prison. Jail. <clears throat> you know. Although yeah. I've heard, like, I mean, this is also a little like sort of uh, side tangent, but I've heard, I've heard uh, you, you, I've heard of people who who are like. Fuck putting me in Burnside jail, send me to Spring Hill because Burnside is such a like I think they both have their I think they both have their can of worms. Yeah, right. Gosh, to say the least. That's me really sugarcoating. Yeah, it. of course, of course. And I mean the whole correctional system, the whole judicial like there's it depends on who you are, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I ran the medical, I ran a medical and psychiatric clinic there at Spring Hill, and I created the nurse practitioner role there. And I will say, because this came to mind when you were talking about your sister, <clears throat> the inmates were protecting me from the staff. Mm. And I had a lot more, I didn't have issues with the inmates. I treated them with dignity, with humanity, and was targeted as a result because shortly after I started working there, I realized, and you have to keep in mind, so I'm a young, for those who can't see me, I'm a woman of color, I'm relatively young, I'm not horrendous on the eyes. You, you have to take all that into account when you're thinking about a clinician walking into a prison of such. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a woman of color, as a woman who's educated and, and a lot more educated than some as the who I was working with. That doesn't rub people the wrong, the right way. Mm. And not to say everyone, because that's not the case. That's not how humans work. And I believe that we're all inherently good, and that just might be me with my naive mind and heart, but I, I believe that, and that is my approach to the world. But I believe that as we grow, we all have stories. And, you know, from, from early on in our story, we could pick up some pretty problematic views and tendencies and behaviors and attitudes and we either approach them and are made aware of them and approach them or we don't and when we don't is when that becomes problematic and so me being compassionate to the inmates was an issue to a lot of the staff and and not all the staff I'll keep saying that because not everyone um was mean Mm -hmm. but I quickly noticed that the inmates of color were being denied health care. Mm. 
and not even subpar healthcare. So I did something about it. And I'd, I would, <laughs> and then I had to not, so for example, if I was booking my clinic, I had to make sure for the sake of the fear of the staff and not just the correctional staff that I, you know, didn't book two inmates, like two black inmates back to back. I booked them apart in my patient load for the day. So as not to make anyone comfortable. Mm. I had to be very mindful of how I walked because I was a target and the inmates knew it. And the inmates were coming to me at one point saying, V, like we appreciate everything you're doing for us, but you need to stop because they're coming for you. In how what, did they know what, that? Like, how, how were they, like, oh, the, are, are they just picking up the, on that? When you have of, nothing to do <clears throat> they're hearing all day, and, every day, and you are locked up like an animal. Yeah. And that's not to say people don't, you know, you, you do the crime, you pay the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. We are accountable for our actions. Totally. But correction should be to work towards healing well, there's no, and it's correction. Not a, it's not a rehabilitation center. No. And a lot stretch. of people, when you look at socioeconomic status, when you look at... Um, racial disparities, when you look at Im- impoverished communities, when you look at mental health, when you look at broken families, when you, wh- so many aspects influence choices people make. But guess what? And <laughs> I, I'm on a tip lately because my, my view of the world is, is ever-changing. And more and more and more I'm realizing how good people are capable of making really bad choices. Mm-hmm. And just because you do a bad thing, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Again, it go, I, I will mm-hmm. forever reference Brene Brown. Guilt versus shame. Mm-hmm. Guilt is I did bad. Shame is I am bad. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and we live in a society that's obsessed with shaming people. And so it's very easy to put people in, under the label of like criminals. And I, I do that with air mm-hmm. quotes because I don't believe that. I don't believe in calling people by a label. Right. Joe Rogan was talking the other day about the um, what is the path to redemption? Yeah. Like we we persecute and individuals and like, yeah. but then we don't give them an opportunity to ever lean into that conversation. Yeah. Come back. Yes. It's, it's it blows my mind. That, like you look at, um, I I really like that that documentary. Where to invade next? Because they go around the world and they look at all these different facets of. Was that the Michael uh, Moore one? I think it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I haven't they look seen at it. All these Pretty these good. these different. Um, areas that certain um, countries and cultures excel in. And um, when I think of the prison system, I think of mm. the, I think it was the Norwegian prison system. Yeah. Mm. And the way that they treat quote unquote inmates there is, is, is with this compassion and with this belief that they will be able to be re- rehabilitated. Mm. And like you look at models like that, that exist in Stella. other parts of the world and you think with success, well, yeah, mm-hmm. you think why not here? Yeah. So, a few things, and sorry, my, my mind is kind of, I want to get back yeah, to answering your question. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to bring it full circle first and answer your question. Yeah. I want to speak to that. Remind me of that in okay. a second, okay? When you are, because you asked, how do the inmates know? Yeah, yeah, right. When you are locked up in a cage, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. or a better way of saying <clears throat> it, and you have nothing to do all day, every day, you're not stimulating your mind, you're not learning emotional literacy, literacy you're not able to properly and adequately, adequately socialize. You are socially isolated from your family and support system. And for the most part, you are dead to the world outside of the prison. Mm. You pay attention to everything. Yeah. 
you pick up on everything. And one inmate said to a guard, why are you guys so hard on her? About me. And the response was, and I quote this, and, and part of my language, I would, I, I would typically not speak this because um, I don't like this word. But the guard said, what did she expect coming in here like a revolutionary without giving any pussy out? Well, that's a hardcore oh, thing to say. Whoa. Holy shit. So the inmates didn't just pick up on vibes. They were, they were actively hearing people. They're being told. They, well, yeah. yeah, and so I would volunteer yeah. after the clinic some days to do writing workshops with the black inmates um, to help them work through some of their, um, some of their own trauma. And that was not very popular. Mm. But it was how does, that, how does that manifest as being not popular? I'm just, I'm I just was curious. Scared. Straight up, straight up. I was this, terrified. <clears throat> this sounds like an episode of fucking Oz. Like, I don't know if anybody's um, watched no, Oz. But it is, I will it's say prison Oz. shows are like Disneyland. Oz is not. Oz is one of those shows Oz that like, Oz was like dark as, as I was looking fuck. over my shoulder when I would walk. <clears throat> so Spring Hill's like an out, like there are. The buildings are separate, mm. and you have to walk through like outdoor tunnels. Mm. I was looking over my shoulder when I would walk anywhere, and it wasn't because of inmates. I was never once yeah. scared. I can't. There was one time where I was a little frightened, um, but that wasn't a normal situation. Yeah, and that was yeah different situation in the prison. But I wasn't scared of inmates. Yeah, and and I'll never forget. There was one coworker who was white, who was an ally. She worked out of a different building. And I'll never forget calling her and saying, are you busy? Can you walk with me here? She's like, yeah, but why? And I said, I need a white person to walk with me. And she started crying. Mm. Is it overt? I'm just, I'm, I'm curious as to whether it's like, so, it's, you, it's <clears throat> whether it's overt or whether it's, or whether it's, imp- is it implicit, implicit. or explicit? It's both. It- it is both. And I mean, I had one guard lock me in my own office while well, I'm, I'm sitting in my chair at my desk. He locked me in my own office and stood over me and proceeded to call me Amazon and tell me about how all the lesbians in Truro would love me. And so there's different dynamics there, right? Because I'm, I'm a female who's also a female color. And I'm sitting there with. I'm literally just like sitting there praying and hoping that someone would walk by and like see the desperation on my face for this man mm-hmm. to leave yeah. me alone. And as as a woman who's physically smaller in stature um, and build, you're always cognizant of not making a male who's bigger than you angry. Mm. Especially in a scenario where you're in a small room that, you know, has no exit mm-hmm. in sight. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. And um, so these are very, they're they're difficult things to navigate. But even the people who do these things, so there were times when, like, depending who was working in the front gate at the prison, where I wouldn't be let in until I waited for a white coworker to show up to work. Because every door, like, you'd have to be buzzed in, right? And again, it's not everyone. And I'm not trying to shame anyone. But it exists. It exists. Yeah. And my question going back here, 
and to the conversation we were having earlier and to the conversation that Tyler Simmons and I are going to have later on toxic masculinity. And as a woman who's lived through difficult experiences with men, who why I won't out is how do we live towards healing? How do we move towards healing? How do we create spaces for these conversations without the need to shame, without the need to cancel people? Because that's, that, it's too easy and too problematic. Well, you did something yeah. that I don't like. But, and, and again, this is the clinician in me, but this is also the empath in me, mm-hmm. is we judge people based on very different standards than we judge ourselves. Mm-hmm. Very different standards. And what kind of empathy and mercy would I want if I were the one to mess up? And the thing is, with this day and age of, you know, problematic behaviors of men coming up in the media more often, Mm -hmm. what's happening is that's often eliciting a feeling of shame in some other men about ways that they've acted before. Mm Mm-hmm things that they're not proud of. And we can choose to do two things with that. You can choose to tuck that away as if it never happened because it's uncomfortable and you're afraid because what if you're outed? Yeah. You could choose to tuck that away as if it never happened or you could choose to lean into that discomfort and work through it with someone who will meet you halfway with empathy Mm -hmm. and mercy so you can actually work towards reconciliation. But what's happening is, is we're not giving people that space. Even people with problematic racial views. And that's hard for me to say. It's taken me so long to get here. Because that, I've been told, I don't want a nigger taking care of me. Yeah. I had a patient say that. Yeah. I've had patients say, I'm not going to get into it, but numerous things like that. Yeah. It's never personal, first and foremost. It's never personal. And my duty is to take care of you, regardless of how you treat me. Yeah. And that's always, and I've always been okay doing that. Mm. But what's been hard for me is how hurtful it is when you're, after I'm done caring for you, how do I not internalize that, right? Mm -hmm. And how do I not feel as though, well, you're just racist, you're bad. No, it doesn't, life doesn't work that way. way. We are all you know, prejudice in our own ways. We all have forms of racism. We all all carry forms of sexism or homophobia, whatever it may be. It's so there's, there's a, there's fuck, there's so many things running through my mind right now, but, and I'll try to like, I'll try to, I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with this. And I, you know what? There's a part of me that is even scared fucking saying this, but, um, I think a perfect example of like what you're talking about right now is this whole thing that happened with Liam Neeson recently in in the media. So it's okay, but you know, I look. Obviously, I am a white male, a white cisgendered male, full of privilege. I've never known what it's been like to to live anything fucking remotely close to what you've said Mm -hmm. over the last whatever fifteen minutes since we started talking about this. Um, so I just want to put that out right off the bat. That you honor that privilege. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. However, this thing recently happened that was like, that was, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty heated in the media. Liam Neeson came out and spoke about how, um, 
in an interview, he was talking about, he was talking about, a, you know, he was on a press junket about a movie that he did about like revenge and feeling mm-hmm. hatred for, it, it was like oh, taking was he the person six talking or whatever. About right? wanting to... So he had a friend, he had a friend of yes, his that was raped and this. raped by a black man. And, he, and so this, he was yeah. like, he was so filled with rage that he, he went out onto the streets hmm. into, I into l- like black neighborhoods yeah. and was hoping that there was going to be a black guy that would come up to him and start mm-hmm. some shit so he could kill that man to like work out his anger about a black guy who had raped his his best friend Mm -hmm. and he comes out to say this with the with the intention to go i've reconciled that is that is that is he did do that i honor that that was problematic yes i honor that that was he was was going this was this is insane that i even had this thought yeah but i i had i had been there before yeah and how horrible is that? Well, he and went I've, on to I've, say that he that he went through this for about five days, then basically said, "I snapped back to reality, realized that I realized was in how a really horrible dark this place, is." Yeah, went to seek help, need, saw help. a therapist, worked so through those, it. Like, I love that you're bringing this up because there are very divided schools of thought on this. Absolutely, yeah. and, I, and and this is but why I, I wanted think to preface. we're on the same this, page. This is why I wanted to preface with: mm-hmm. I am a white male. I have never fa- I have yeah. never faced. You know, persecution because of my fucking skin color, because of my gender, because of whatever. Yeah. However, for someone to come out and say, um, this had been a part of my life where I did this thing that was really awful and I realized how fucked up it was. Mm. And I just want to like let everyone know that that was a thing. Now, completely voluntarily. Completely voluntarily. but like, but for for then he for wasn't then forced. It didn't yeah. come out in no 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 because someone dug up dirt. He was like, listen, this is something that I went. Yeah, and I I understand that that is that is super fucked up, and and that I'm sure if I was a black male, if I was not who I am, I've watched. I would probably feel a fucking way about Liam Neeson after hearing that. But also, I, I I would hope, I would fucking hope, and I feel like you and this is where you and I are kind of this very similar. I think I would hope that I would also be someone who would go kudos to this fucking dude for actually like acknowledging how fucked up this is. And I can get a lot of flack for my opinion. I on know this. you can. Yeah. I know you can. And I yeah. know some of the people that will give you flack <laughs> yeah. for this. And and again, that's mm-hmm. OK, too. It's OK it, to feel away. But also we have to recognize we, we need to recognize that we need we have to, to be able to see, talk about this stuff and, and we need to leave room for it but we need to learn <clears throat> to see the world from a more compassionate lens that's right I, and i've watched many debates on that topic between from white people to black people mm-hmm. caucasian to mm-hmm. whatever you want to whatever terms you want to use i'm not going to sugarcoat anything um, cuz i don't believe white or black is an insult so. I've watched this debate from amongst black people, you know, different identifying people, people of, you know, straight African descent, people of African North American descent. I've I've watched it across the board. And as I read the comments, I'm thinking, I don't have very popular views. Yeah. But I'm okay with that because I'm at peace with the way I see the world. Because the way I see the world is continually growing and changing. Yeah. But I'm a much more a much more productive and peaceful person 
the more I attempt to see the world from a more empathetic lens. Yeah. And it, and so, so the other, the other things that were coming to my mind was, you know, speaking about, and this is, this is like a sort of two-parter. So, so there was also a recent podcast I was listening to about addiction and, and this fascinating thing that's coming out that, that we haven't actually like taken into consideration or we haven't, we haven't taken the time to implement about addiction, which is that addiction do, isn't due to the substance. Addiction is more so due to the the environment within which someone finds themselves, right? So there was a, there was a study where there was they, they took a rat and they put a, a rat or a mouse in a in a cage, and they gave that rat n- that mouse nothing except for mm. water and heroin, heroin laced water, and the mouse has nothing to go on, bored as fuck, trapped in this cage, and has two choices: water to s- sustain yourself mm-hmm. or heroin to change your scenario and feel better. And the, and of course the mouse just goes for the heroin, only the heroin, only the heroin and then dies due to heroin overdose because it just continuously takes it. Right. And so after the study was conducted, we, we all thought, okay, well there we go. It's very easy to see like heroin triggers this thing within us or within the, you know, bodies that makes us addicted to this thing. And we will continuously go to it if we become addicted to it and, uh, until we basically run out our lives. Mm-hmm. But then there was this guy who was like, well, hold on, hold on. That mouse is living a pretty shit life in that little cage with nothing else but heroin and Thank water you. to well, choose from. Mouse is so so why, don't, <laughs> yeah. why don't we do the exact same experiment? We'll take the heroin water on one side of the cage, the regular water on the other side of the cage, but we also deck that cage out with other mice and uh, pl- toys, and the mice can fuck as much as it wants, and it can play as much as it wants, and it has wheels to run on, and it's like this little mouse theme park, but also fully has the ability to tr- take in as much heroin as it wants or as much water as it wants. And the mouse doesn't go for the heroin. Mm. It's there. It doesn't need it. Because it's living in this happy life. It doesn't so, need to fill this void. It doesn't void. need to fill this void, right? Yeah. And so so to take that and turn it and, and look at, you know, society and humans and what's going on right now with, like, the opioid crisis, well, where are the places in the world where this opioid crisis is is the biggest? And, and what are the options we're giving people? It's, it's taking part in places that are, um, that overall, in terms of statistics, are much higher in... Um, much higher stats in like mental health issues, mm-hmm. uh, poverty issues, Thank you know, you all of these, that. all of these fucking things. <clears throat> Whereas, you know, you look at places that are a little more affluent where things aren't that bad. People are still fucking doing drugs. People are still doing heroin. People are still doing party drugs, but they're not becoming addicted to it because they don't need to change their life. They're living mm-hmm. a happy life. And so you look at places like Portugal or you look at places like, um, you know, Sweden, places where they've legalized the use of these things and it's completely changed these people's lives and they're no longer addicted. Okay. So where am I going with this? It's all based on environment. It's all based off of like what you are placed in and how that's going to affect you. Like the stories I was talking about earlier. We all have our stories. We all have our stories. We're a culmination of stories. That mm-hmm. is what we are. Now you take a child and you, now I'm switching from the drug thing and mm-hmm. going back into like more of how we view the world and how we speak to the people around like, us. I was raised very homophobic. Take a child br- born, like, and, and birth them into a neo-Nazi family. Mm-hmm. That kid's going to re- grow up to hate anyone who isn't the Aryan fucking white race. Yeah. Jews, yeah. blacks, 
people of di- with disabilities, yeah. any of that, any of that stuff, they're going to hate them. But take that person, pluck them out of that and completely change their environment. And this is, we, this has happened. There's stories of this, of people coming out of that going, holy oh. shit. That's not the world. That's not the world I want to live in. That's not the place I need to be. We have this ability to change the way that we live our lives. Yeah. We have this capacity to, to unlearn. To unlearn. But, that, but here's my <clears throat> we have to see a need for unlearning. And totally. What I I feel like you've had something to say for a while. You should talk and then I'll say something. Yeah, well, I was, I was just going to say and not to like interrupt this thought because I, mm-hmm. I totally agree with you, you chair, but um the one thing that makes me so mad about the war, the current state of the world is the fact that everything is so fucking polarizing. I was and exactly. It's just yeah. like you're either one school of thought or you're, or you're the, the other, other. school you of thought be. and you can't fucking have a conversation with anybody about anything that might pull you in one in the opposite I, direction like I used to see the world Isn't the sign I'm of self admittingly like like changing? I used to feel like if you didn't agree with me then you're racist. You're my enemy. Yeah. 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 And I, and that's hard for me to mm-hmm. admit. But I'm the more openly I'm able to do so, the more I can find healing. And the more I can learn to see the world from an even more compassionate place. So as I was just about to mention, I was raised in a very homophobic culture. And one of the most important people to me, who I consider blood, isn't blood by birth, but I consider blood till death do us part, is gay. Mm. And is from the same country. And if this person's family knew, this person may not have lived, is what I'll say. If if this person's family knew that this person was gay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, when this finally, when they finally came out, because I asked, and I didn't ask to be nosy or mean. I asked, like, how can I love you properly? And I asked someone who is a loved, another loved one to this person. They said, you need to call him. I called him immediately. I had plans for the day. I called immediately. I said, I dropped all my plans. I said, I'm coming to get you. I went and picked him up and I asked him. And I, for the life of me, couldn't stop crying. Because when he told me, he, I said, why didn't you tell me? And I asked, did I ever make you feel like I would love you any less? And for weeks, I was an emotional wreck because I just thought, did I make him feel mm. like I would love him any less? And he denied that. But it just made me hyper aware. How do I make people feel? I had a patient who was one of my favorite patients. Once came in and went on a rant about how the whole world is against him because they're a white male. And I, in my head, I thought, is he really saying this right now? Like, ouch. Does he not see me? Is this the same person? And I had to have, and I had to be very mindful of how I was treating him. 
in that appointment because my, like, the human in me wanted to treat him differently. Mm-hmm. And after that appointment, I had to have a conversation with myself to say very good people can have problematic views of the world. Yeah. How do we lean into that conversation? We have, and just, to, we have to do it with our just, arms open. We just, can't do it closed off. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and just like how <clears throat> I was starting to mention earlier about, you know, males who are hearing of these horrible things that men have done and they're watching these men be publicly crucified. And that, that eliciting a feeling of shame because a lot of the men I know have done problematic things in their lives. A lot of the women, a lot of people in general. But when talking about toxic masculinity, a lot of the males I know have at one point or another done something that even they want to acknowledge is problematic. Mm. But a lot are too scared to. Because what if someone finds out? And it goes back to guilt versus shame. Guilt being I did bad, shame being I am bad. Just because yeah. you did bad, it doesn't mean you <clears> are <throat> bad. And and I had to remind people that all the time when you know when people hear, "Oh, you used to work at the prison. I bet you're happy to get out of there." And I remind people all the time, it wasn't the inmates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just because they did bad, doesn't mean they are bad. Mm-hmm. Just because I've done bad, it doesn't mean I am bad. I honestly, this is. I I am so glad that this is where this conversation ended up mm-hmm. because I think I I truly do think that this is one of the more important things that needs to be addressed these days and um and I'm I'm with you I think that we are inherently good I re- I, I truly believe it I, I truly believe we, believe are. we are inherently good and I think that most people if they actually sat and thought about that they would probably agree but it would take a little bit of fucking effort for them to actually see yes that is how I actually feel but it would take some effort for some people to admit that they're good that's right so here if yeah. you have a young child from a young age and I've watched this in my nephew who I adore mm-hmm. he's 10 years old but is a brilliant young man and is often seen as being this troublemaker if you're from a young age told you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. Well, you grow up to be bad because that's just the easiest thing to do. No one's expecting you to be good. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you're told that enough times, you become it. Yeah. How do we speak to each other? Because the way I speak to you, I'm speaking life. Mm. How do we speak to each other? How do we treat each other? And just like you said, open arms. And a lot of these conversations are also still imperative when it comes to the death and dying process because a lot of the 100%. a lot of the grudges held between families <laughs> or family members could be resolved if we just looked at each other with a little more empathy. Yeah. And I think it's a lot harder for young men to be empathetic or to learn how to be empathetic because we raise young women and young girls from a young age to be empathetic. Mm-hmm. Not every male is raised that way. No. We think it's easy. Oh, you're lucky you didn't have a girl. Mm-hmm. Why? We put so much more effort into the moral code of our daughters. Mm-hmm. But we act like we don't have to put effort into raising boys. No, because boys, they because they, they just learn to stuff it down. Because boys will be boys. Boy, yeah, boys and, will be boys. And that's no longer, that can't be good enough. No. Mm-hmm. That can't be good enough. And so then you have young women who are my age. We're in their, their 20s or 30s and who are, as per Jeff Pereira, a good friend of mine who does work around masculinity in Toronto, they're emotionally jacked. Yeah. You've been flexing those muscles forever. 
because you've learned how to be empathetic from time. Whereas a 20 or 30-year-old man is more like the person who goes to the gym once every few years when it mm. comes to empathy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, right. right? You know, so that's then, a fucking so then, great example. So then we had, and, and yeah. big ups to Jeff Pereira for that, yeah, but yeah, yeah. we have young people getting in relationships who don't know how to communicate because they're not even seeing each other. Mm-hmm. And, and men think, oh, well, she's just trying to mold me. To No. Mm. She's trying to teach you how to be empathetic. She's trying to train your empathy muscles that have never been touched. Yeah. It's funny. Our, like, when we, we did a, a survey a couple of times, and, and every time we got it back, it was like a sort of general survey on who's listening to the podcast. And the, the numbers were very heavily skewed, right? Mm. Like, like 90% women mm. are listening and 10% men. And we were like, what the fuck is that? You know, like, what, what is that? And we need it, to do better. And, and people were like, oh, it's because you guys are like three good looking guys. Okay, thank you. We know that. But that's not why people are fucking listening. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's got to be more so, than that. And that goes back and to it's emotional labor. Of, it's, the, it's, the, it's the empathy. <laughs> it's, the, it's the like vulnerability. It's the fact that we're actually having these conversations that are it like. It makes people uncomfortable. Yes. To, and to bring it full circle. I'm going to say one more thing there and I'm going to bring it full circle. Yeah. So. It is unfair for the women to have to carry all of the emotional labor of training people. Mm. If someone does not want to be trained, and trained I'm using in terms of like empathy muscles, mm. I'm not using yeah, it. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. But I think that we're speaking of two different things when it comes to people who, who want healing. There's something else that's problematic that we won't even touch today. But what about those men who are toxic and who know it, but mm. don't want that healing or help. Yeah, yeah, That's even more problematic, and that's destructive and dangerous. Yeah. But we're talking about people who are leaning into conversations, right? But to bring it back full circle, I was talking about empathy, emotional labor. Oh, yes. Death and dying. Why do we not want to have those conversations? Why were the adults in my loved one's life pushing her away? Mm. We don't want pain that isn't ours. And we want to avoid pain and discomfort as much as possible. Whether it comes to relationships and having to own my own dysfunction that I don't want to admit is there. Or whether it comes to being empathetic. Because compassion means sitting with someone in their darkness. Mm -hmm. It is so easy for me to see you in pain and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I hope things get better for you and move along. Bye. Yeah. yeah. And life can be very lonely and difficult for empaths. And I don't use that like it's, <laughs> I feel like it's become a very trendy term. Mm-hmm. But I mean for like people who are empaths or caregivers who carry the burden yeah. of other people all day, every day, mm-hmm. because you don't just do that at work. You, you mm-hmm. care from your core. Mm-hmm. But that's pain and discomfort a lot of people don't want, so they avoid. And I catch myself doing that all the fucking time. All the fucking time. But here's the thing. It's not just... We don't just sit together in darkness. Like, there's a verse, and I'm not trying to sound like (laughs) a preacher. Um, There's a verse that I love so much in scripture. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Mm -hmm. Empathy. Because I'm, if you're if you're sitting in sadness, I'm going to sit in sadness with you. 
If you're joyful, I'm going to celebrate your joy with you. I'm going to celebrate you. I'm going to celebrate your accomplishments. Mm. I, I just feel like aren't the most beautiful experiences in life the the moments when you can be so um, intimate with someone else and not like physically intimate but emotionally intimate yeah. where you're able to go to the place of, like you said, darkness, be vulnerable and be there to support them mm-hmm. in that moment and help them through it or be supported through something like that. Isn't that like <clears throat> the most intimate way to foster emotional connection. And, and it's all, it's, it's also with death. It's, it's our, it's humans biggest commonality. Mm. It's the only, it's, it's the only, natural. it's the, it's the only one thing, thing we, none of us can avoid. <laughs> everybody shares. There's not one person who doesn't. And I think that there's probably, I think, you know, what you said earlier, like, you know, death shouldn't be this, Scary, you know, scary, shitty thing that we all are, you know, terrified of experiencing. There's a lot to be learned about each other, and a lot of of greatness and positivity to be found. I think in in <clears> understanding <throat> that we all have it in common and using it using it as a tool to understand each other. Mm-hmm. Because you know, and again, coming going back to something you said at the beginning of the episode, which was something around, you know, when there's been a estranged family members that are, that are then brought back together when death comes knocking at someone's door, because I think death a lot of times allows us to see past the things that we've built up as, as things that we hold against each other. And it can bring people back to each other physically, Mm -hmm. but emotionally they need help sometimes with that bridge. Mm Mm-hmm. And what greater of an honor than to lean into that discomfort and help people have those difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. I went on, I was supposed, I went on vacation in October. It was supposed to be vacation to visit one of my best friends. And she coincidentally and very conveniently married one of my other best friends. And he's from the Bahamas. He's a physician there. And she's from here. She's from Sprafield. Days into the trip, the the groom, like my my friend, his brother, who is a pilot, got into a plane crash. And so the vacation, it was supposed to be a reunion of university friends. This We were a really close-knit group who's comfortable with this kind of stuff with each mm-hmm. other. The vacation turned into a search and rescue for his brother. And it... It meant so much to my friend and her husband and this whole family that I was able to lean right into that pain and was hurting with them. And it was really hard coming home and being home and having to to return to work and normal life when my heart was there. Powerful things happen when we sit with people in their pain. And as a caregiver, we need to learn to let people sit with us in our pain mm-hmm. and in our joy. But, we're, you know, we're, we're all right with celebrating each other. We're all right with being happy because mm-hmm. it doesn't take as much effort. But there will be a lot good. of people. Yeah. Some people and, have and a real Jeremy, tough time with it. But yeah. <laughs> there will be a lot of people who are around you when you're happy. Mm-hmm. There may not be as many people around you when you're sick. Mm-hmm. 
And that is why like the, the work that people do who are caregivers is so crucial. Mm. I will never forget one of our CF patients who was a regular, you get to know people so well. Mm-hmm. It was Christmas. He died on Christmas. It was the worst Christmas. None of his family was there. Mm. And we got him gifts, like everyone on the unit, we got him gifts. And they were like lame gifts. <laughs> but he was so happy opening them and he could mm. barely speak. But he was so happy opening them. Because in that moment, we felt like family. Very, we came from very different worlds. Mm-hmm. But we were humans meeting on the same page and that page was his pain this is um, I hope people hear this me too I know there's going to be I mean there's there's obviously going to be a bunch of people that hear this but I hope people who hear this really hear this Mm. and um, I on behalf of you know the three of us, I I thank you so so fucking much for coming in Anytime. and sharing this this uh, vitally important perspective. Sick Boy Podcast. We'll be right back after this very short break. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. All right, folks, uh, that was our conversation with Farina. Uh, if you want to listen to the full episode, it's episode 179, Care, Race, and Redemption. And now we're going to throw over to a recent conversation we had, uh, episode 237, with Dr. Ingrid Waldron. There's something in the water, environmental racism. So enjoy it, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Dr. Waldron, can you can you um, speak to some of give us some of, uh, examples of what the primary inequities you see in the system here locally are? Um, I can talk about it from several perspectives. I can talk about it in terms of uh, access to healthcare and to healthcare uh, disparities. Uh, so when we talk about healthcare disparities, we're talking about the fact that, for example, Indigenous and uh, Black communities in Nova Scotia and Canada um, have, in many ways, poor outcomes on certain health issues than other communities. Uh, so we know that uh, Black communities have high rates of, for example, cardiovascular disease and uh, diabetes, and to some extent, certain cancers like prostate cancer uh, tends to be higher for black men uh, in the United States and anecdotally in Canada. Hmm. Um, and of course, uh, respiratory illness, uh, reproductive health issues, particularly for indigenous women, some of them resulting from toxic burdens due to environmental racism. So health disparities, we, we believe, are higher uh, in certain communities. And those health disparities are not genetically determined. People would say, oh, they're born with it. 
It's something that they're born with. It's genetic. It's biological. What we know from studies in the United States and to some extent in Canada, there are outcomes of structural inequities, right? So in order to talk about uh, health disparities in any kind of productive way, you have to look at structural inequities within our other structures like education, like mm-hmm. our history of colonialism, the legacy of colonialism in Canada, uh, like our political systems, like labor, like income, poverty, and education. And that's what the social determinants of health is, or what I call the structural determinants of health, mm. is that our health outcomes are a product of mm-hmm. structural inequities within our social structures like housing and education and labor. Is there, is there any data to um, determine which which one of those uh, pillars of those structural inequities kind of has the greatest impact on negative health outcomes? We don't have uh, data on that because, once again, we don't have that uh, statistical data. But I would say for right. – it's hard to even actually say which is worse because they all intersect in terms of worsening health outcomes in those communities. But I would certainly say that poverty and um, income insecurity – and unemployment and underemployment, which is, of course, connected to poverty and income insecurity, are the mm. um, major factors in health outcomes in black communities, indigenous communities and immigrant communities. So I put those at the forefront, poverty, income insecurity and unemployment and underemployment. You um, you it, before Brian asked that last question, I, I had this this question formulated in my head, and you 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 kind of pivoted right into it, and and so I, I'll kind of pivot the question. You spoke to the you spoke to um, the question of you know well what's is it genetic or is it socially de- socially determined or structurally determined as you put it um, that I can only imagine that that must be extremely challenging to. Uh, to quantify without the statistical, without the statistical um, like analysis to back it up, like how big of a challenge do you face in that regard? As to, in going, in saying that something is um, like structurally or socially determined rather than rather than genetic. How do you how do you go about that advocacy without the statistical uh, backup? Even though we don't collect statistics uh, quantitative on that issue in Canada, we can easily pull in the literature on on stress that has been done in the United States and also in Canada. So we know that stress is the main determinant of all of our major health outcomes. Cancer is a product of stress. We used to think that cancer was mostly about genetics, that if your mother had cancer, you're more likely to have cancer. Now we have this whole field called epigenetics, right, which you've probably heard about, which is about the fact that, um, you know, it's about your cell membrane, essentially. And if there are changes, negative changes or negative environmental exposures to that cell membrane, then it changes in a negative way. So the whole Mm. field of epigenetics tells us that stress and other negative factors have an impact on our body. We know that racism, for example, is a stressor, right? Um, We know that poverty is a stressor. We know that stress raises our cortisol level. And we know that a raised cortisol level or elevated cortisol level predisposes us to many or most of our chronic diseases like cancer, like diabetes, et cetera. So even though we're not pulling, we don't have uh, statistical data in Canada, we know that 
uh, chronic stress uh, predisposes us to illness. So by bringing in that data, there are people in Canada who are doing that work on stress and cortisol levels, and that's just a fact, right? And of Mm -hmm. course, worldwide. So if racism, and people have actually um, confirmed that if racism is a a stressor, which it is, um, then we know we can pull in these issues to look at how they intersect in order to impact health. There are studies in the United States that actually talk about the fact that um, black people are less likely to go into REM sleep. Than Whoa, really? They're more likely to, or they're less likely to go into REM sleep, meaning that they're, their, their, their sleep tends to be superficial, if that's the right word, mm-hmm. because they're always on alert in a way, uh, because they're li- they live their lives on alert because of predisposed, you know, um, uh, stereotypes or, or attitudes about black people that they're Whoa. always on alert. And that then transfers to the way in which they sleep. I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. That is super fascinating. Yeah, so that, that's a study that was done, was it by um, Dr. Williams at Yale University, African-American professor who's a sociology um, of health professor. And that, that work has been done. So it's no different. I mean, you can transfer it to the Canadian context unless you believe that racism doesn't exist in Canada. We know that there's a particular way in which stress and racism impacts the body. And there's nothing suggesting that it's not going to do the same in Canadian community. Speaking of racism, there was there was something that you said earlier, um, which I'm sure some people listening have have never heard this term before. Environmental racism. Um, and and I know we'll, we'll likely get to to uh, your book and and of course the the um, uh, the feature length documentary. Um, there's something in the water. Um, but before we we start to touch on that, what what is environmental racism? What what does that term mean? Uh, environmental racism can be defined as the disproportionate uh, location or or siting of polluting industries and other environmental hazards in primarily indigenous communities, black communities, and communities of color. Uh, It was a term that was coined in the mid-1980s in the United States. And it's just a term that refers to the fact that environmental policies that are created by government um, tend to target uh, communities that are both racialized and poor, and communities that are also in what we could call out-of-the-way places, whether it's reserves or rural communities like in Nova Scotia, where we have a lot of rural communities and a lot of rural black communities, um, they tend to target those communities uh, for the siting of polluting industries and other environmental hazards. So it's, it's this notion of uh, the intersection of race and power and uh, rurality in many cases and income, because the communities that sit at that intersection of living in rural areas, of being racialized, of being low income, are those communities that we know tend to have less power. And when I talk about less power, I'm talking about less economic power, less economic clout, less political power. And those communities are the ones that tend to be forgotten, right, by politicians, because they don't really need to um, um, remember those communities when 
time comes to vote oftentimes because those are sometimes communities that don't vote because they mm. recognize that it doesn't seem to make a difference, I guess, over the years. So they're less likely to vote. But in many ways, those intersections of race and, and class and income um, lead to their invisibilization by government. Um, and that means that there's often inaction in terms of addressing their issues, similar to what we see in Boat Harbor. But the Boat Harbor issue um, in Pictou First Nation, where they have been trying to get the government to address their concerns since the mid-1980s. And as you know, only late last year, the week of Christmas, uh, the mill was closed after, mm-hmm. what, since 1985, I guess, around there, the community started to um, request that the government do something. So these are communities that, in addition to being first selected for the siting of these industries, they're least likely uh, to have action taken by the government to address those concerns. Mm. And I, and so, so like w- something that you that you hear all over Canada all the time is the issue of pipelines being built, and I mean that's a that's like something that's you know always always in the news and people protesting and um, and what the government how the government thinks about a pipeline being built and what the companies think and what the people think and and the land that it runs through and um, so w- when you're talking about you know these uh these communities where all these factors intersect with each other and then that and and through through years of probably a self a, a, a self-enforcing cycle that that perpetuates itself over time um leads to this lack of of political power economic power and then and now you have and now you have a company that comes along and they build a pipeline and that pipeline wants to run right through that community and and you know, from where I'm sitting, I go, why doesn't the company just build right around it? And it, and from your perspective of being, having expertise in this is the reason because a costs more money and that that company combined with maybe the, the, the political powers that be think because it runs through this community, we can just get it done and save the money. We can push right through this community, and because they have, they don't have the political capital or the economic capital. Hmm. We can, you know, we'll face the protesters and everything, and that that will all happen. But at the end of the day, we'll get this done, and we won't have to divert our mm-hmm. pipeline, you know, twenty five or thirty or fifty kilometers, you know, that way, and then around to the back and everything like that. Is that is that what is that? I mean, that's a I mean, that's a base a very simplified version I'm I'm sure of what happens but is that in a nutshell like what's going on I certainly think it's complex but I think the main issue would be that those are the communities that they recognize are less able to fight back because some of the things mm. that I talked about if you put um, a pipeline in for example an elite white community I'm not talking about a poor white community because we have we have environmental injustices in a place like Harriet's Field, which is a low-income white community that's mm-hmm. rural, right? And they're having issues, and they've had issues since the 1980s. Yeah, I bike through Harriet's Field all the time. White community, boy, we're going to hear something about it, right? Because those mm-hmm. are people who get to have their voices heard, but also who have political clout and who are seen in many ways. So I think the decision by government to put pipelines, for example, primarily in indigenous communities is about the fact that it's much easier to do so because they're doing that in communities that in many ways are destabilized. Um, The fabric of those communities is often weakened 
by the multiple other social ills that an Indigenous community, for example, is dealing with beyond environmental injustices. So uh, an Indigenous community in any part of Canada is already dealing with income insecurity and poverty and housing insecurity and missing and murdered Indigenous women and food insecurity and violence and suicide and mental illness. And that's a community that's dealing with multiple social ills that then consequently weaken the fabric of that community. I'm not saying that those communities are not strong communities. I don't want anybody to get on me and say that I'm saying that they're not strong communities, but the fabric of those communities are weakened. It's much easier to come into a community that's dealing with all these other social ills and put a pipeline in there because of that. And also knowing that those communities have less avenues to fight back Mm. against the siding of those communities. So for me, it's, it's kind of um, a no brainer for government to do that. Um, And perhaps, and perhaps also to offer, um, to make short term promises that, um, are ultimately outweighed by the long-term negative impact, environmental impact of having something like a like a pipeline run through. Yeah, and I mean, I've gotten questions by students, you know, and others who would say, well, where would you suggest, Dr. Waldron, that they put these pipelines in our community, in white communities? And that's not what I'm suggesting. And it's not up to me to make that decision. That's, you know, you're asking a professor, right? You've got to ask uh, the people, the industry and the government who d- who makes that decision. But my, my suggestion would be that when you do an environmental assessment, which is a process that you go through to decide where an industry gets placed, that that environmental assessment to me isn't taking into account the social ills that I just described, how putting that pipeline <clears throat> further compromise the vulnerability due to the things that I just mentioned, like missing and murdered women and, and, and inequality, et cetera. It's not taking those things into account. It's just putting an industry in those communities. But if you were to factor in um, all the things that I mentioned and how putting industry there would create even more vulnerability, would worsen the social, economic, Mm. political issues that these communities have, then perhaps you would make a different decision. So I'm not saying certainly that, you know, uh, no, you should put it in a white community. I'm just saying that the way in which Mm. you put environmental assessment needs to be just and fair, Mm -hmm. and it needs to take into account uh, which communities are most vulnerable? And we know the most vulnerable communities are Indigenous communities in Canada. So you make matters worse. It's hard to address their the social ills that they're asking the government to to address, particularly through the Truth and Reconciliation Report, which is what was a hundred page report or more than that that discussed how we're going to address issues in Indigenous communities. When you're further compromising the issues that they're asking you to address in the first place. So an environmental assessment to me as a sociologist, I look at it through that sociological lens. We used to look at the sociological ramifications of putting that pipeline there. And if you find that it's going to worsen uh, the social fabric of that community, then you shouldn't put it there. Then you've got to go back to the drawing board to find a community. Yeah. Why do you think it's so hard for us as a society and, and especially in the world of like in, in the world of medicine, like we're talking about right now, why is it so hard for us to wrap our head around the idea or even the concept of systemic racism? Like what? Like, why is that? It, why, because like I'm sitting here, I'm going, that's crazy. Like, we need to do something about this. But and I feel like like everyone should be feeling that way. Yet nothing's it, it doesn't seem to be the thing that is like, is it because we're too science focused? Like we're too focused on 
on the the, the yeah. medicine, the, the science? Like, is that why it's an issue? And, I, you know, I want to go beyond just race. You know, it's sexual orientation and gender identity and income and poverty. All those things are important. So it's not just race. You know, I, I also speak with students who are doing work on LGBTQ issues and the need to be struck with mm-hmm. confidence. So it's all those issues. It's two, two reasons, I believe, because we are ensconced in the medical model and we only give validity to anything that's science-based um, and that focuses on illness um, as an outcome of the malfunctioning or breaking down of the body and then the solutions to that illness uh, through drugs and other means. It's also because those are who are holding positions as doctors, who are in the health professions, who you see uh, at hospitals and other healthcare settings are primarily white. White people, like I appreciate what you said, but it's difficult for them to understand racism because they don't experience it in the same way that racialized people do. So I do recognize that it's very difficult for white people to empathize with racism and truly feel it. You probably could say to me that you understand it. You have a friend who has spoken to you about their experiences and you... But I've never been there. Yeah, exactly. I've never experienced it. So it's hard to Mm -hmm. validate racism as a health issue. Mm -hmm. It just seems seems out there, right? Um, Mm -hmm. We talked about the psychosocial stressors of racism. That just seems out there for people who don't uh, typically experience it. Um, so I think it's those two things. The medical model holds power and will continue to hold power for some time. Although the work that I'm doing, I would say, is gaining ground, right? Else they wouldn't allow me to teach what I teach in the School of Nursing at Dalhousie, a prestigious university. They would not allow me to teach it. Um, mm. I think it's gaining ground. The Public Health Association of Canada, or is it the Canadian Health Association last year or the year before, finally validated racism as a determinant of health. And they were called on for years to do that, and they finally did. (laughs) Institution like that, that has recently recognized racism as a determinant of health, which has been done in the United States for years, that's a big step forward. So there's increasing kind of um, legitimization of racism as a structural determinant of health. But I think we've got a medical model that is so powerful and that is the grounded in science and the ways in which we understand science um, doesn't really accommodate those social, external, environmental issues impacting the body. Mm. This kind of in, in terms of like, in terms of um, the next step after recognizing recognizing it as a social determinant of health, like once they recognize it, how do they actually implement real change? Like, what are the things that that are being done or could be done to actually change the way that the healthcare system works? Yes, and some great questions because these questions are uh, the final paper for my students last week was on this particular issue. How do you address the structural determinants of health in health policy and in healthcare workforce and in health promotion? Well, what you need to do is you need to engage, the health system needs to engage in more crosstalk Right. So the the health system and the education system and the labor system and the immigration system, they all work in silos. They don't talk to one another. There's no problem. And if we're going to address uh, the health outcomes and the mental health outcomes of structural inequities, it means that everybody has to collaborate in order to do that. So you've got to be speaking with the folks in labor 
and you've got to be speaking with the folks in employment, and you've got to be speaking with the folks in the seniors uh, division of the government, and you've got to be speaking with the folks in the environment, etc. It means that people have to engage in crosstalk and start to develop partnerships where they come together in order to address in their own sectors how to address these inequities, but then how does that feed into health policy and the healthcare workforce? Now, some of us are taking care of that issue in terms of we're professors, so we're teaching our students about these issues. Uh, but healthcare professionals and folks working in those other sectors also need to partner. And I think there's a fear of doing that because people think, oh, it's going to be more work. It's going to be a burden on me. You're asking me to do even more work. But I think there are ways to do that in a smart way uh, where people are uh, building on what other people have done. So I think that's um, one way to do it. I think of a, I think of the North End Clinic on Goddard Street in Halifax, and they use a really great model, which is actually it exemplifies what I'm describing we have this term called um, interprofessional education uh, at Dalhousie mm-hmm. or in the health professions. And if you look at the model that's used at the North End Clinic on Goddard Street, they've got dietitians, they've got nutritionists, they've got medical doctors, uh, they've got social workers, all working as a team to address the multiple social, political, economic issues that clients face. That's a model that I would love to see taken up by more uh, in, in healthcare settings. I think it's a community-based clinic, uh, the North End Clinic. Uh, it might be difficult or challenging to, to do that within a hospital setting, but you need a team of people, um, who a team that's comprised of health professionals from different sectors who are addressing the multiple social, economic, and health issues faced by your client through an interdisciplinary or multi-sectoral team. And that's not really happening. So that to me is the first step. Is there, is there anything being done to, um, is there anything being done like, like even earlier to, to spread awareness? I'm sitting here listening to you and, and I'm thinking back to when I was in high school and the things that I was taught uh, in high school and in junior high and, and systematic racism was not one of those things. I, or let me rephrase that. If it was, I wasn't paying attention. So like, is that something that is being taught in, in high schools and, and junior highs? Um, uh, because I, I, I was joke, you know, half joking there that I, I probably wasn't listening. I, I probably wasn't if it was being taught, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't being taught in my high school and I'm from lower Sackville. I went to Sackville high, right? So I'm from here. Um, is there, is like, is the, is the landscape changing there in terms of earlier education and, 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 um, kind of pushing forward a bit more awareness uh, surrounding things like systemic racism or environmental racism or, you know, um, I mean, I, I know, I know speaking to a, a high school teacher who's, who's still a really good friend of mine. Um, and we meet up every once in a while. Like she's, she's talked to me about how, how vastly different the, 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 um, discourse uh, surrounding LGBTQ issues has changed since I was in her class. But is are we seeing a, a, a shift in the way that we speak about 
you know, the injustices done to the indigenous population of Canada or, or, you know, systematic, systematic racism or, or the things that were covered in, in your book and in the, the documentary, um, there's something in the water. Like, is there more being done to talk about that? It's changing very slowly. I mean, in my classroom, I have with, uh, in nursing, you've got, uh, students who have just come out of high school. So we have a young, or we used to anyhow, um, a young, uh, the, the age grouping is very young. They've just come out of high school. And they typically would say to me when I started teaching my social determinants of health course that I used to teach a few years ago, they would say, I've never had a black professor in my life. And I've never learned about any of these issues. And there's a bit of a frustration mm. that I'm asking them to grapple with these issues when they haven't learned about it. So they're they said, I've learned some things about diversity, but I haven't, you know, we use that term, but I haven't learned about racism. And now I'm asking them to grapple with it. And I can sense that they were frustrated. I was asking too much. Um, so I would say that just based on what my students have told me, it's not being done. But I do know some high school uh, uh, teachers, some of whom are white, who have made it a point to discuss Indigenous and Mi'kmaq history and African Nova Scotian history, some I'm friends with who are doing that work. Uh, so I think it's happening very slowly. In terms of environmental racism, I'm actually collaborating with an NGO right now called uh, Let's Sprout to actually embed environmental justice and environmental racism education into the high school and middle school teach uh, curriculum. I was approached by a Sackville Heights uh, teacher two years ago around my environmental racism project. She said, this is great, but I'm not seeing anything for young people. And I said, well, I've been trying to reach out to the high school system for a while to kind of try to embed environmental racism into the high school curriculum. And it's been like a maze. I found it very difficult to find connections there. She said, I'll, I'll help you. I'm happy to help you. So that was a 2017. And I'm now involved in this project where we're going to do several things. We want to create online resources and tools to teach about environmental racism to high school and middle school teachers. This, these would be tools that professor teachers can use in the classroom to teach uh, this information. And we're also more broadly trying to change the curriculum, the high school and middle school curriculum, uh, to embed issues around racism and Mi'kmaq history and African Nova Scotian history and environmental racism into the curriculum. Um, and we did an environmental scan last year. And in doing that environmental scan, we found that there's a big gap um, in mm. that infor- with that information in the school curriculum. Mm-hmm. I'm happy that you brought up that question because this is a, a goal of my, mine that I know will be very challenging. Um, it's very challenging because you've got mostly white professors who don't feel comfortable teaching this stuff. So that's the other part of this, yeah, right. which I understand. They're, they're afraid to trip up, right? You're afraid if you're yeah, part yeah. of a particular group, um, you don't want to say the wrong thing. I was fucking afraid of tripping up coming into this conversation today. I was like, man, we're going to be talking about racism. I, this white guy coming, like, what? A- <laughs> I'm not a part of the yeah. LGBTQ community, but I yeah. Yeah. talk about LGBTQ issues in my class. Yeah. When I first started talking about LGBTQ issues, I was like, oh, God, I know I have to do this ethically. I can't just talk mm. about race. I've got to talk about all the inequalities, but I'm not LGBTQ. I don't completely empathize, not empathize, but understand their struggle. Yes. But I've got yeah. to teach it and I might make a mistake. And I have made a mistake and the student called me out. In, in the class <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but that's, and, and that's important. Like that's one of the, 
the greatest lessons that doing this podcast has taught me is that when you're trying to empathize, as long as you're coming from a place of compassion, there's no there's no telling that you won't make mistakes. But when you do slip up, the people on the other side will be able to forgive you. And it's just an opportunity for you to learn and move forward. All right, there we go. Um, I hope that you listened to that, and uh, I hope that you send this to some people in your life if they if you feel like it could um, be useful for them. And I'm not going to say too much more. Uh, thank you for listening. Keep doing hard work. Keep having hard conversations. Keep listening. Keep digging inwards. Learning about how you can be a better ally. And uh, listen, if, you, if you're not aware, on our, on our Instagram, in our uh, link in the bio, we've listed a ton of resources that uh, we've been checking out and have been really helpful to us. So feel free to go check those out. And, and just remember, you know, this is, this is not a time to be silent. This is a time to, to use uh, your voice to, to help better the world. This is a time to do whatever it is that you can do to better the world, you know, sign petitions, um, read, read the resources, watch the resources, listen to the resources, um, march, get out and protest if you can physically, if you can, if it's safe for you, you know, I, I can't do that. Um, I'm not in a position where, where that would be a smart idea for me right now because of COVID. Um, but there are ways that you can contribute and, and to make a difference from your home. So, Look into that. Do that. And fuck. Folks, let's do this. Let's let's be so much better. Let's be so much better. I I really am I really am hopeful that we're gonna see change. We just gotta we just gotta climb that fucking mountain. But that mountain would be a lot easier to climb as a team. So Alright, love y'all. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.